All right, folks, here we go. Just a reminder, all of our seminars and camps are eligible for continuing education credits for folks that are in the business and need those towards their current certification, whatever that is, not just our coaching workshops. That said, our next seminar up is October 13th through the 15th, then December 8th through the 10th, then February 9th through the 11th. As far as the coaching workshop goes, this is a workshop that's open to anyone. There's no prerequisite. You don't necessarily have to be in the business, but it is useful to those folks as well that are fitness professionals or personal trainers. If you just want to look to become a better coach, learn about barbell training and strength training in general, come to the coaching workshop. You'll learn the starting strength principles, methodology, and how to take each other through the five-step deadlift setup. Next one of those is September 23rd in Katy, Texas at Starting Strength Katy. Rip will be down for that one. And then Ina is running one on October 21st on Long Island. For self-sufficient lifter camps going on, September 23rd in Omaha, Nebraska at Testify Strength and Conditioning, then November 4th in Wichita Falls, and a deadlift and power clean camp on December 2nd on Long Island. Squat and deadlift camp in Baltimore at 5x3 Training on November 12th, and then some three-lift camps with spots still available October 21st in Brussels, Belgium at Brussels Barbell, November 19th in Glasgow, Scotland, and December 9th in London. Speaking of learning to coach, the online coaches prep course is open to anybody. This is for folks that want to become starting strength coaches and either work independently or work in a gym. It's a self-paced course. You get assigned a starting strength coach mentor that will go over your written assignments and video assignments for the coaching portion of that. So the, really the only prerequisite is going to be that you have somebody to coach and that you're able to video that. For more information on that, head over to startingstrength.com forward slash careers and learn more. And as usual, for more information on anything that I've talked about, head over to startingstrength.com and check out the right-hand side of the homepage. From the Asgard Company Studios in beautiful Wichita Falls, Texas, from the finest mind in the modern fitness industry, the one true voice in the strength and conditioning profession, the most important podcast on the internet, ladies and gentlemen, starting Strength Radio. Welcome back to Starting Strength Radio. We are fortunate this week to have our friend John Wilborn in the studio with us. Thank you for having me. John drove up from Austin against my advice (laughs) because once you get here, you're in Wichita Falls. Yeah. (laughs) You know, and nobody wants to be in Wichita Falls. But he decided that since I'd driven down there, he was going to drive up here, and we appreciate his presence in our expansive studios here at the high dollar terribly expensive luxurious studios here at the studios plural here at the asgard company nice thanks for having me in our little our little (laughs) 2200 square foot metal warehouse out here well when you came to my place we were in a barn yeah this is kind of like a clean barn this one. Oh, there's nothing dirty about your studio. That was a no, fine, it's great. Little, yeah. fine little place. Those of you that haven't seen that that uh, podcast need to go to John's website, which is... PowerAthleteHQ.com. And look it up. And uh, what you will see is a fairly long conversation between two pretty good friends. And I think you'll enjoy it. So that's going to be... Uh, That'll be something for you to do. That's your homework assignment. So, John, uh, I don't think people know enough about what your background is. So you're at this point, you're a retired NFL football player. You're what, 45? 46. 46. 
Uh, sounds a lot older it, when I say it, it out loud. It, it, it does, doesn't it? I'm 67, so I was 21 when you were born. Just think about that. That's real fucked up. That's weird, weird. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, So what you questions know, you got? 40, I, I mean, like, <laughs> Fran Turkington was, he played till he was like 47, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, no, he looked fucking, he aged in dog years. He might have been 100. He might have been, but, man, that little fucker was running around in the backfield yeah. now. <laughs> Still play. What, he played in the NFL for like 70 years or something like uh, that? Kenny Stabler played a long time, too. I yeah. remember seeing him taking off his helmet. He had a full head of gray hair. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, it's, things were different back then, I guess, but... Uh, Anyway, tell us about how you got into the NFL. Like growing up wise, or how did it like? I mean, what the hell did you, I mean? You came out of college and you got recruited and you. Yeah, I, I got yeah, I got drafted out of uh, college. I mean, the journey started long, long before that. Sure. Uh, I grew up, uh, you know, Southern California, youngest of three boys. Uh, my brothers and I, uh, you know, were competitive in a ton of sports. Um, I think like a big, you know, if I think about origin stories, uh, my brother, my oldest brother, is about six years older than me, and um, okay. when he was probably twelve, he got beat up by like a local bully. And he came right. home and told my dad about it. My dad really wasn't a big fighter, so he didn't know much about it. So, I mean, this is like 80s, 90s, mm-hmm. karate kid stuff. Right. So my dad takes him down to this Japanese dojo to do martial arts. Right. So he takes him down to this place, and it's like hardwood floors and, you know, the whole, like, literally, like, traditional Japanese karate uh, called Shotokan. And after about three weeks, my dad just dropped my other brother and I off there, too. Because you know we were bitching about it, and he was probably punching us as well. <laughs> so uh, I did that pretty. Uh, he was practicing on yeah. you guys. When you, uh, when so then, then we just started riding our bikes there. You know, yeah. imagine that, like get, come home, get your stuff, and get on the bike and ride there. Well, sure. And we did that for a number of years, and then I think it was about 1986. And I was 10 years old, and uh, I watched uh, Marvis or uh, Marvin Hagler fight Tommy Hearns. Yeah, on TV. And Thomas Hitman Hearn. That was a hell of a fight. Dude, they those two guys, first of all, oh, they were in phenomenal shape. Yeah. And they come out, they stood in the middle of the ring, and those dudes punched each other with like every shot was like a heavyweight bomb out of a movie. <laughs> and I remember watching that and thinking, kicking is stupid. I want to learn to punch. So right. there wasn't a, a good boxing place around, so I ended up finding a kickboxing place uh, with this John Barrett Kickboxing Academy, sort of going there, and then I uh, ended up with a boxing coach later in high school. And we're training with a guy, and uh, then obviously, you know, started playing football because I wanted to lift weights. I remember right. telling my dad pretty early on I wanted to lift weights, and that was another funny story. I was, uh, was probably about 10 or 11, and there's a thing in Southern California called Junior Lifeguards. Those of you guys that know anything about it, but it, basically what it is, it's a lifeguard apprentice program. Right. When you're about 9 or 10, you get into this deal, and you go to the beach in the summers. Junior, and, senior, life-saving, I yeah. think they, that's the name yeah. of the program, wasn't it? Yeah, you basically learn to swim, and then you get to go surf all day. So right. like, why wouldn't you do it? And right. uh, I think it was probably around pretty close in the same age, and all of a sudden we were at like this aid station working on uh, CPR. And there was like a big, like it looked like a riot. We heard all these people screaming and yelling. We ran over there thinking like, oh, we're going to do something. We didn't know what it was. And we saw the commotion. And then all of a sudden we saw like the people part. And it was people going crazy because this guy was walking. And he was walking towards us. And we were like, like, like didn't know. And like, he just looked like a superhero. He was wearing like a little set of shorts. He was wearing a tank top and had like just like long hair and a big chain. And uh, a guy comes walking up on us. And the guy looked like a superhuman. He had this like huge chest you could sit a Coke can on, and the guy was just massive. Mm-hmm. And we were watching, and like people were like rioting on seeing this guy. 
Right. And uh, we started following him and just, like just in awe of what he was. And I remember thinking like, I don't know how that guy got like that, but that's pretty cool. Yeah. And uh, that was Lyle Alzado. Wow. So we got to see Lyle Alzado in his prime, and uh, we saw him run up and down like the Strand deal a bunch. And, mm-hmm. and then I remember telling my dad like, I think I want to lift weights. And then my dad told me uh, that's for idiots. Counting to ten over and over again. Why would you want to waste your time lifting weights? Morons do that. <laughs> so uh, my mom ended up uh, helping me get a gym membership, and I went right. to Gold's Gym, and or uh, not Gold's Gym, a twenty-four hour fitness gym. And then when I went to high school, I they had a twenty-four hour fitness back then. Yeah, yeah. Well, so I didn't know they had business with that. Old. Yeah. That's and it. then uh, I went to high school, and I, I wanted to play football because I knew that part of it was lifting weights, and I didn't necessarily mm-hmm. know what they were doing in there. But I knew that the people around those weights were getting bigger, so I was kind of half convinced that like lifting weights got you big through osmosis, or maybe just mm-hmm. being around the weights made you big. <laughs> so uh, that's when I started lifting weights, and I wanted to be big and strong. Now you were exposed to an interesting guy back then, uh, a powerlifting coach. Yep. Uh, back in Southern California, that pretty much. Everybody in powerlifting was aware of. Yeah, a guy named George Zangus. He invented the supersuits and the wraps. Right, Zangus uh, was a was a big deal back yeah. in the. That would have been the early '80s. Yeah, Marathon Nutrition. He was the Thompson powerlifting coach for Bill Casmar and those guys. Right, and uh, he trained a lot of really strong guys, yeah. and he knew what the hell he was doing. And you guys trained with him, yeah. didn't you? So he lived in our neighborhood, and there wow. was uh, uh, he would come down to the high school. And he would always offer lifting advice and come down and kind of coach a little bit. And then certain individuals that had maybe a little more aptitude or skill or maybe a little more potential, he would invite to come train with him on Saturdays. And we would show up and we're kind of his training partners. Well, that's 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 interesting that he would uh, have done something like that. Yeah, it was uh, great. I remember showing up. I don't and, think Louis Simmons ever did anything. Like <laughs> no. That, did. Well, well, George made his money through supplements, so he wasn't necessarily like training athletes for for money. So, right. and he wanted a bunch of young lifting partners. I mean, you know, he uh, he had all daughters, and he uh, enjoyed the guys coming over and lifting right. weights and banging. And you know, I definitely think now that uh, I'm a, I'm a little bit older, it's nice to have some young training partners. Yeah. And to have some young guys that are going hard and yeah. definitely pushes you a little bit. So sitting right. around a bunch of old guys smoking cigars and lifting weights. <laughs> It's funny, uh, a bunch of old guys used to come over and look with George all the time and want to smoke cigars and sit around and eat sandwiches for like four hours, <laughs> hide from their wives, and we wanted to get in and bang some weights. But uh, George was incredibly impactful in my life. Uh, he yeah. he uh, took us under his wing, trained us how to lift, and we actually did it in his three-car garage. So I started training in a garage. Oh, that's cool. George Zangus, he was a colorful guy, man. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was years later. I connected with uh, Dr. Fred Hatfield. Yeah, and you know he had um, talked about Dr. Fred Hatfield and especially about compensatory acceleration. Mm-hmm. You know, his mechanical advantages increases right. so to speed. And when I told uh, Fred about you know George talking about compensatory acceleration and referring to Fred as his friend, uh, Fred got super pissed because I guess George had kind of hosed him on money or screwed him on something out of like yeah. at some <laughs> powerlifting meet and he was real salty about it and he was like what he called me his friend they you know and then uh, oh. and then like he got all pumped up and they thought yeah. about it and he's like you know that was a lot of years ago uh, you know that was really you know and he I could see that he reverted away from it but I could tell he was still salty about it yeah yeah God. You know, I never met Hat- Well, I did meet Hatfield. In fact, that's a funny story. I'll tell you privately. <laughs> privately, <laughs> because yeah. the circumstances. It was at the 1980 World Championships, and uh, yeah, I'll, I'll tell you about that. And uh, Star was involved in that yeah. <laughs> in that thing. So, 
Anyway, yeah, so, so you uh, got in with Zangus and got strong, learned how to lift, and uh, ca- I guess carried that into college. Yeah. Right? Yeah, so I, I was uh, like six foot, I'm maybe 165 pounds when I was a freshman, and then by the time I was a senior, I was like six four, two 255. So I gained almost close to 100 pounds and grew four inches, and then got a bunch of scholarship offers and ended up going to UC Berkeley. Um, not because I was, uh, you know, dreaming of playing for the Cal Bears. It was more because yeah. I, d- I didn't think I was going to go play in the NFL. At that point, I had, didn't really know anybody ever played in the NFL. I mean, when I was a, yeah. ironically, when I was a pretty young, my Pee Wee basketball coach was Art Shell, you know, the left tackle for the Raiders. Mm-hmm. He lived in our, uh, you know, like lived in Palos Verdes where I grew up, and his son and I ended up on the same Pee Wee basketball coach. He was the only pro football player I'd ever met, so I just didn't really think much well, about it. And I guess at that time. Pro football players were different than they are now. Yeah, it wasn't they like social the, yeah. eight hundred million dollar contracts no. and stuff like that. It was, no, they were. It was completely different. Yeah, but uh, so when I went to college, uh, it was really just where's what's the best school I can go to and what's the best degree I can hang the wall on the wall. Right. And uh, for me, it, I didn't want to go to SC or UCLA. It's too close to home. And uh, I always heard real smart people go to Berkeley. Right. So when I got there, I did not know any of the historical kind of significance in like in the uh, uh, in like the 60s and like the hippie movement and like you know like Berkeley's place and that I knew nothing of this right. I just knew that really smart people went there and there was a bunch of Nobel laureates well and, and that's uh, that is true it was a stellar organization for a very very long time yeah. I think there are very few colleges left that are um, you know academically pristine anymore everybody's got everybody's department has an agenda and it's a leftist agenda the chemistry department at berkeley probably has a leftist agenda at this point yeah to create napalm and other cool stuff yeah no it uh it like i so uh, people you know whenever i hear people like oh like berkeley i did not feel uh like the sense of like that push when i went there yeah uh you know i felt there was a lot of people that were trying to relive like the hippie days yeah um you know i didn't necessarily see it until i got to grad school no no i was in the in the 90s so i was there 94 through 98 oh okay and then i did my master's in my last year and it wasn't until I got and did my master's program in education because I graduated in four, but I had an extra year to play my fifth year, so I had to get a master's. Right. And when I got into my master's program in education and I had to student teach and I kind of got into like higher education, that's when I really saw like the kind of interesting leftist agenda and a lot of apologies being made for, you know, I thought, you know, people pull themselves up by their bootstrap is the way that you know america works right right you know people are judged on their merit and this is the world's greatest meritocracy and when i got to grad school i realized that's that's not the case not the case and uh, certainly not anymore and then you think as an nfl player the nfl is the world's greatest meritocracy right if you can do the job you get a lot of money if you can't you don't do the job right like race color creed not like nothing can you do what's required of you so i I kind of always these are the numbers we need yeah numbers yeah so i I, like you know and for for college for football in my entire life it's always been this process driven meritocracy and then to be a, a i guess introduced to something that is something less than that is always very shocking and then when to point it out to people right the one thing people don't like is uh when you turn the lights on and you point it at them and tell them like this is not how the world works and you can only exist in this microcosm in, in academia this doesn't exist anywhere else right people get butthurt they don't get prepared in college yeah for the actual way the universe operates because you know, and God Almighty, fifty years ago it wasn't really this way. 
but well, what's crazy is 50 years ago was the years. 70s. Yeah. So you're talking maybe like 70 years ago because in the 60s Man, and 70s it was a change. Yeah. You're talking 70 years ago. Probably true. I mean, if you if you had a degree from Berkeley 70 years ago, you were prepared. Yeah. Yeah, it was uh, you yeah. were, they expected a lot of you yeah. and they would not hesitate to bounce your happy ass out of their program if you didn't do the numbers. Yeah. You know, but now you know, if you're a black female, for example, the numbers are different. Well, I and mean, that's just unfortunate. Well, I mean, that was the affirmative action deal, which uh, always was interesting for the affirmative action stuff because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I mean, the per- the people that it tends to be harshest on were the um, you know the Asian population, which yes. is technically deemed as a minority, but yet when you think about affirmative action, they were the ones that really took a huge, huge blow in the deal. Oh, absolutely, because their numbers were better than everybody else's numbers, and we can't have that. No, uh, I do. I, I was in that. several classes with uh, extremely smart people. I just oh, always... I, we all went to college with them, and if you had a science degree, uh, took a science degree back in the 70s, uh, there were Asian kids in the class with you that murdered your ass scholastically, murdered you. I remember my and, first uh, calculus class. Um, I sat down day one, and I brought, you know, pulled out my stuff, and I started writing. And these kids had set up tripods with camcorders. And then as they were going, when the professor started writing, they had cameras out, and they were taking pictures. So they had camcorders and pictures. And I'm sitting there with, like, my folder, and I'm like, oh, I'm so screwed. These kids, are so, <laughs> they are so far, much farther. They are the collecting curve. much more data oh than I am. And, yeah. And, and they had, yeah. uh, you know, joint fraternities that had historical libraries of data, this information. They done, I mean, they really did it well. Yeah. I was like, shit, these people have it figured out. These, uh, these are the individuals I went to school they're with. They're very so. serious. Yeah. They're, very, they're much they more serious not, about their, their yeah. scholastic endeavors than, than we are. And... We have decided, I guess, that that's just not fair. Although it's a decision that they've made. It's not fair for them to decide to take this shit seriously. That's what what we're saying. You know, I got this... Things are so fucked up, you know? Well, uh, but but, I mean, it's like lifting weights, right? Like, you have to do the work. I I don't know how... Five pounds of workout. Yeah, I don't know how to get strong without lifting weights and, like, being progressive. And, like, I I did a talk recently. We we had our Power Athlete Collective this last weekend, and one of the slides in my talk talked about uh, um, process versus outcome-driven individuals. Mm-hmm. And so lifting weights and training, like if once you finish your basic linear progression, what do you do? Go yeah. to another advanced program. It's right. like it stops. right? So this idea that there's a process, and playing football really is just a process. right? I go out on the field, and I have to execute a job, regardless of who's around me. Like it doesn't matter mm-hmm. if this guy gets hurt. Like the process doesn't change. And I think a lot of people are very outcome-driven, where if I do this, you know, like in, for me, like the outcome – was you know like it, you know you go in you follows from the process well like you know like like you go lose a game oh my god the whole world ends no you know what you do you go back into film study you start again and that's the reason why we do these every week until right. you get to the very end and so there has to be a process go back into the and, process and I've come to the conclusion that there's two types of people there's these process driven people and then I've run into a lot of outcome driven people 
where now all of a sudden, like my outcome is uh, I need to make X amount of dollars. And so however I make those dollars, it doesn't matter. I just need to make that money right. or I need to do this. And I, you know, um, one of my young fighters, uh, Victor Hugo, fought a couple weeks ago at a big a Grand Prix in Vegas. And uh, it's, it was him against a guy named Nicholas Marigoli. who was, t- you know, these two guys, the top guys in the world in, in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Victor went into it. Uh, Marigoli, Marigoli gets a little sweep about six minutes in. Victor kind of makes a tactical error, could have just like stood up. No points. He doesn't. Marigoli gets two, ends up winning. And then so after Victor was down and was like, you know, like pretty upset about it. I mean, as he should be. I mean, he's lost out on a big, big paycheck. And, uh, you know, he was like, you know, I'm, I'm sorry in this. I'm like, what are you sorry for? Like, you're making it sound like we're outcome driven. This is process. Did you think it was going to be easy? Did you think that because you worked hard that they would just show up and hand you the check and this guy would roll over? He gets paid too, and this guy fucking trains his ass off. Yeah. This is part of the process. We're going to have bumps, but the mission never changes. We're going to go right back to the gym. Right. We're going to continue to train, and we're going to fix this shit. And you know what? We are going to win on sheer will and just the fact that we won't give up or miss, and we will fucking be victorious, right. and we will smash these people just out of the fact that, like, we put our shoulder to the wind and we don't stop. We right? went through the process. Yeah, and, and like this one it, match doesn't decide anything. No. Like, 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 there's no one moment as you guys are going. There's no one set. There's no one workout. There's no one year. There's no one fucking decision no. that like is the finite outcome of your life. It's the it, it's, it's the, the evolution accumulation. Yes. Of all of these things. And that's what training is. That's why lifting that's weights exactly is the greatest what, metaphor for fucking life. Right. That's what. That's exactly what training is about. And training is about. As we've said thousands of times, training is about the accumulation of adaptations. Well, and think about and then, when and you start. What you're it's talking light. about is exactly the same. So thing. when you start, it's light, but it's kind of yeah. heavy. And then as you get stronger, the weights get heavier, and it becomes harder and harder and harder. But you've effectively done the work to be able to lift right. them. It's the greatest analogy for everything. When, when you start your your novice progression, 115 for three sets of five squats feels heavy. And when you get to 315 for three sets of five squats, it feels heavy too. It's just more weight on the bar because you have adapted and accumulated the force production capacity to do that. And then, it, you know, things get more complicated. The further along the curve you go, just like everything in the universe, yep. there is a diminishing returns aspect of, of everything. But one of the things that we learn from training is that the things we thought about training have to adapt as well when we are faced with inadequacies in the process that we had tried to apply the process adapts too yeah it has to the process has to adapt as well as the guy doing the process yeah absolutely right yeah no this uh this realization on on process versus outcome was a huge piece and it was it was interesting as i was trying to you know talk to victor and like you know give him a um you know some sage advice you know a little mentorship i had this like mirror turned back on myself and ended up adding it as a slide in my talk that i gave a few days later um you know as an analogy and really just a a roadmap for the training like Mm -hmm. like everybody gets so romanced upon like this one piece and this one outcome and you know when you look and you really buy into the process uh all you do is you know failures are just speed bumps and you know, as long as you learn something, something from them, and you can continue on. But I realize that just a unwilling, sheer desire to keep moving and not stop. Right. Because what's the outcome? Like, what's the final outcome? Death. That's it. 
Well, and, and the game is placed. Yeah, and the that's final it. analysis. That's yeah, all that's there it. is to it. You know, like, uh, like what's the outcome? I'm going to retire at 60, move to Arizona, and eat $1.99 eggs at the fucking egg store, <laughs> right? And try to, like, you know, go lay by the pool and do nothing. Right. Like, that's not an outcome. You know, that's that is. I, I would rather fucking suck start a, that's, four, that's a 45. That's no outcome. No, that's a terrible outcome. But there's yeah. people that their idea is, I'm going to retire, and I'm going to do this. I'm going to get a Winnebago and drive around America. That's great for two weeks. Then what? What are you going to do that for the next fucking 40, 50 years of your life? My parents lived, dude, my mom's still alive, 84. My dad passed at 80. Like, you're going to just, like, cash in your chips at 60 and go lay by a pool in a retirement community? I, I, it sounds it's, fucking it's, terrible. It's insane. It's what it is. It's But that's but what a they've a whole sold. bunch of people have been raised. Yeah, where, we call these company men. Where where did they're, that come from? They're company men. So people that worked for people, Xerox and people Kodak. People get a and job a, for a major corporation when they're 23 years old. And they stay in the corporation and they work toward my retirement. Because my retirement is the goal. They, they want. Those are those outcome-driven people. They're outcome-driven people. Yeah, that's absolutely, go. that's a perfect analogy for for, for this deal, the, the outcome is my retirement. Well, what does that actually mean? I avoid those people. You know? Like, uh, if there was dog shit in my backyard, I'm going to try to, like, walk around it. I'm not even going to step right. over it. I just avoid yeah, it. Yeah, they're, they're not uh, – it's a it's a terrible – it's a terrible waste of human potential yeah. is what it is. If you set a, a, a expectations for yourself that terminate when you've worked 40 years, well, we see the same thing. That's too. rather arbitrary, don't you think? Well, but, I mean, but we see the same thing with people with diet. You know, people that diet. Oh, once I lose twenty pounds, or oh, you then know, I'm then yeah, I'm where then, I then, to be. then I'm going to be, or like you know, I'm going to die for the next twelve weeks, and I'm going to do this or this, and they look at these and these blocks, and uh, I always go back to a talk that Andy Stump gave me years ago when I, you know, we had him speak at a, one of our symposiums, and they asked him, you know, how he was successful at buds. His entire life was focused on seeing the sun come up. As long as he could see the sun come up the next day, he yeah. was going to fight to get to the next uh, um, the, sunrise. The next one. Yeah. Right. So they asked him, you know, how did you pass buds in Hell Week? He's like, sunrises. As soon as he goes, I just had to get to the sunrise. And as soon as the sun went up, he thought, and it went down, he knew that he had just to get to them. And he's like, it was just, right. just fighting for sunrises. And he's like, if you just fight every day for a sunrise, yeah, everything's going to be pretty good. You know, the, the problem is, is people forget about the sunrises. They forget about this. And I think it's a... Uh, it's a vapid life, man. It's not one I want to lead. No, I don't. Uh, I mean, I got a good buddy that's mired in this in this paradigm, and uh, it's just too bad. It's 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 too bad to see this. He and I are the same age, and and uh, but he's a company man. Yeah, and, but uh, you know, and and he's not got. Uh, he spent his whole life. Doing what other people told him to do, one way or another. Now, there's some autonomy in how you execute what you're yeah. being told to do, but that's you know. Well, you're effectively building somebody else's dream. That's what you're doing. Yeah. That's exactly what you're doing. Yeah. And uh, it's just it's sad to see it, but well, I, lots and lots and lots of people. Well, well, do you remember we met and I? Uh, yeah. Do you remember years ago when you came over to the loft I was living in? And we had that big barbecue. Yeah, remember that big metal loft? And you were like, "What the fuck are you doing living in California?" <laughs> and I remember Rip used to ride me on living in California, and I always thought I always told him, you know, I don't know if we're going to live here forever. He's like, "I think Texas." And then when we ended up, when I told you, I think, "Hey, uh, this guy, you know, 
we got unsolicited on our, on our home. I think we're going to move. And you were like, when you move to Texas, I will come down. And I will like, and it was funny. The first time I think you'd ever visited me when you came and did the podcast, and we had been yeah, here a number I lied of years. To you. Yeah, I know. I lied. <laughs> you know what? Good on you. Should have. He's been. like, he's like, the day you move, I'll be down there. And like, I'm, it took him years to get well, him down. But podcast. you've moved to Austin, which is the California of Texas. Uh, I, I effectively, in my defense, that's that's okay. very true. I did not know, and I, 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 I dude, just because for my uh, my hubris or my ignorance, uh, I did not know that I was moving to the Orange County of Texas. Yeah, that's that's. I, much. I like I didn't move just to California, Texas. I literally moved to the Orange County of Texas, and I didn't know this right. when we moved there. But then all of a sudden, COVID hit. Joe Rogan moves to Austin right. and talks about how great he is on the podcast. And next thing you know, there's Lamborghini trucks. And I have G wagons, oh, and all of a sudden, Whole Foods is packed with moms that are driving like you know two hundred thousand uh, dollar cars. Oh, geez. like I I did not know that we were moving. I thought we were kind of moving to the country that was still kind of close. Right. I didn't realize that they were going to build no, multi million dollar homes around is, me. It's the, Austin is just it's a metastatic cancer. But you, really when you came it's, to my place, you liked it. Yeah. It was littered with a bunch of like... It's got a bunch of junk laying around, <laughs> which is comfortable. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Rip's like, you got a lo- nice collection of crappy uh, uh, ripped apart carcass cars. So which is, That's fine. You know, I, I'm happier. I've been around that all my life. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's like, that. you got a nice junkyard. And I, I laugh. What's going to happen <laughs> is one day they're going to build million dollar homes around me. And they're going to be like, look at these hillbillies with all these ripped up cars. And they're going to come in and file suit against you and <laughs> make you mow the yard or something. <laughs> you got to mow around all the trucks. Now, how long have you been down there? Uh, we, uh, four years, right? Late 2016, early 2017. We oh, moved that's, that's actually – so that's my, six years, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Man, we were nine months with my little boy, and he just turned seven. So it's all. So long. you uh, don't even remember California, do you? <laughs> I mean, well, the day-to-day shit, do you? Uh, I do. Um, you know, I still uh, could probably close my eyes and drive around there. I mean, I grew up there, you know, my entire right. life. And then I obviously lived in Northern California. I had a pretty amazing opportunity last year. Uh, I don't know if you remember Matt Vincent. He was a, a Highland Games guy. He's got a company. Uh, it used to be Hate. Now it's not dead yet. Uh, but he uh, he hit he hit me up and said, hey, we have a, uh, a, a trip plan with Indian Motorcycles that they're going to release this new kind of uh, – uh, epic pursuits bike and we want to do like film like a travel show so he uh he called me because he knows one i have a motorcycle license and two i could probably take a week off so we and a group of people met in san francisco uh on indians dollar they gave us bikes and we rode from san francisco all the way through california over through bakersfield and ended up in joshua tree over eight days Right, and uh, I forgot what an amazing, beautiful, probably the best state in the world California is. Yeah, uh, it's, it's 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 the most beautiful, like the most uh, well, like that's we started. Why everybody went out there. We started in the redwoods. We ago. we started in the wet redwoods. Went down through Cambria and Monterey. Cut over. I mean, rode over through uh, you know Bakersfield and like all the way down through L.A. to Joshua Tree. I mean, such a diverse. Like place, I mean, the, like every yeah. ecosystem there, and the most amazing water. And uh, I had a, a true remember my true like you know growing up in California as a kid, like it was great for it, and what a great way to see it in a motorcycle. But then you get in and you realize that you got Gavin Newsom and the taxes just, and all of the what craziness. These pieces of shit have done. They have place. destroyed probably the greatest place on the planet. Yeah, it's. Uh, I was first out there 
Could we know, give them West Texas? We could give them West Texas. They'd then we could get Well, we give them West Texas. We get back to California. Just move all the people to West Texas. They won't. They we'll won't. give them like San, San Angelo. They would destroy Paso. West. They'd figure out a way to destroy <laughs> West Texas if it can be done. That they would figure it out. It, uh, it, everything they do out there is antithetical to like logic and reason. You know. Yeah. Yeah. It's a it, it's a frightening place. I mean, it, it really it, to be so fucking gorgeous out there. God it, Almighty! Yeah, it's unbelievable. Yeah, I've been all over the place uh, on my on my motorcycle and and uh, driving around and everything. And it's just you know, I had a good friend I used to visit out there twenty five years ago, and uh, and I've you know spent quite a bit of time out there. Well, I mean, and, you used to go to Santa Cruz when you and, were associated uh, with the uh, with the CrossFit cult. Yeah, I was in Santa Cruz a couple of times. One of the strangest places I've ever been is downtown Santa Cruz. Yeah. That's a very... That is a psychology experiment. <laughs> that's... <laughs> that's just... How is it that you people can act like this? Uh, <laughs> you guys have seen the movie The Lost Boys, right? Remember that? With the vampires? Lost I vaguely boys. remember that uh, with yeah. uh, Keanu or no, not Keanu, uh, uh, Keeper Sutherland, yeah, and uh, the uh, the Corys, Corey Haim, Corey Feldman were in that. The Lost Boys was like a was that eighties or nineties movie? Yeah, eighties, eighties, eighties for sure. But that movie, I mean, that's how I define Santa Cruz. Yeah, like the like you know vampire cult. It's insane. But uh, insane. like you're talking about one of the most beautiful places, surf spots in ever. I mean, uh, coming through, oh, yeah. like like driving through Cambria, like that's if man, that's where I would pick up and let the it coast cook. highway is. Just, yeah. I mean, I don't see anybody drives down that without getting killed because your eyes. Yeah. Everywhere except the road. We were on one driving over in the Cambria area, and as you're coming through one, there's like mountains on the side, and there's grass, and then on the other side, there's a huge grass deal, and they have cattle grazing. Mm-hmm. So you're driving through, and it's like on the cliff, there's grass, there's cattle, and then sheer cliffs. And the mm-hmm. cattle are grazing as you're driving through, and cattle on one side. I, I was like, that has to be the most expensive pasture That is in the world. damn expensive <laughs> pasture. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah that that's expensive is. pasture. Yeah, it is. But, yeah, it's it's just amazing what's happened to the place. But, uh, no, uh, it's, it, 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 was, know, uh, it, it was a great place to grow up. My uh, I, cousins, my, my mother's brother used to live in... Riverside, and their kids were out there, and I've been out there and visited them, and uh, that was a long, that was in 78, and, uh, and you know, from time to time, I've been out there over the years, Riverside but I, was, I'm just uh, not going back. Yeah, Riverside was farmland then, but uh, it, it was a great place to grow up. Um, yeah. I, um, I tell my kids all the time, they, they all watched uh, Stranger Things. So then they become kind of I don't know if you know Stranger Things. It was a Netflix deal, no. it, but it, it, it started. It, it was it was uh, f- like takes place in the eighties. Mm-hmm. So it brought back. I mean, all of a sudden the kids like knew Metallica and they knew. I mean, it was great because then we're in yeah. the car and they're like, "Hey, can we listen to that cool music?" And it was all the eighties <laughs> stuff. But uh, the uh, so I asked my one daughter what she wanted for Christmas, and she's like, "I would uh, like a time machine to go back to the eighties <laughs> and late se- like late seventies, early eighties." Yeah, and I tell good. them if I had any wish, it would be exactly to if raise I you guys was, in the late seventies, early eighties. If I could grant that wish for you, I would. 
Yeah. yeah. OP shorts in the beach and riding our bikes. It was great. Uh, I think growing up in Southern California was amazing. I can't imagine, you know, I, I've seen the Daisy Confused living in, in Austin. But uh, it's, uh, it, it's an interesting time, like, uh, to have kids. And then also with my background of having gone to Berkeley with a degree in rhetoric and then also master's in education, having an intrinsic knowledge of education and models and how it's built, you know, all of a sudden going into public school, especially here in Texas, that, you know, really puts this star test front and center. Uh, now you're looking at rogue memorization where these schools are just training these kids to take this test. I wasn't very happy with yeah, the, that's not so. That's the public schools. I don't know of a public school system anywhere in the country that is intact in terms of generating an education as opposed to training students. Well, so what's the goal? You know, Critical thinking. You need to be able to critical think. Theoretically. That's yeah. Like, so, that's so, so my entire goal, and, and I you know, obviously didn't learn this. You, know, you don't really learn it until you go to college, but critical right. thinking, how to work in groups, how to mm-hmm. take in information and ask questions and work in deductive reasoning. Like to, for me, that's what I felt was most valuable. So when we started looking at schools, I found a small private school that the first thing they asked, they said <laughs> critical thinking, working in small groups. And I'm like, oh, sounds very, very college-like mm-hmm. instead of just rogue memorization to right. make Henry Ford's cogs that you fit in so that you can be the good little, uh, you know, uh, factory worker. Well, a certain amount of rogue, uh, rote memorization is necessary. Uh, you have to have multiplication tables memorized because yes. it saves time. Yes. You you have to know. You have to learn your letters. You have to learn your letters. You've yep. got to learn American history. You've yes. got to learn world history. You've got to just remember all of that uh, stuff. I do like So that you Texas. don't make those mistakes yourself. I do. Well, the thing I do love about Texas is they teach Texas history. Yes. Before they teach American history. Yes. So my daughter still do that. Yeah. No, I know. Yeah. In, in school, we were. I was having a conversation with my son. Um, you know, all this, like, just the Texas history supersedes it, and I think it's great. Like, like, learn about your state and learn about uh, all the heroes of the uh, you know Texas Revolution. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I've got those stickers on all my cars. I know. I uh, I, I posted that, and I got a lot of hate down in Austin for having that sticker on my truck. Really? Yeah. I came out many a time to having a handwritten note. Wow. Yeah. What did it say? Uh, Traitor. Fuck you. Fuck you. Yeah, how dare you? You're the problem. We're not the problem. No, 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 no. You're not the problem. <laughs> yeah. No, 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 no. You Democrats that vote to allow the destruction of all that is good and holy – well, you're you're making it sound as if uh, there's really a hair's difference between the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. Well, I don't believe I don't, there's any no, difference. Now, when I say the term, let me let me clarify. That's a very good point. Yeah, the Republican Party is um, the Democrat Party without the artificial sweetener. Oh, okay. All right. It, the 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 Democrat Party is the is the is the Communist Party, and the Republican Party is uh, the fascist status quo party. So when I say Democrat, I mean uh, these militant fucks that do not care about the arithmetic, and by the arithmetic, I mean. Well, like we've we've touched on previously, if you 
for example, think that green energy renewables can replace carbon-based fossil fuels, you are innumerate. Well, all you have to do—you're just in all you have to do—is the calculation on raw materials. Right. So the amount of raw materials that it would take to make the batteries and basically the yeah. renewable, like there's e- even like the it's, numbers that they've kind of allocated. They say, hey, this is the amount of electric cars that we need. Right. They're going to have to either find a different technology from lithium batteries, but because the uh, effectively there isn't enough raw materials in the present Earth. Right. Even if they were to recycle everything to basically meet any of their stuff. Did you see did, the? Did you see the news today? Oh, I, there, there I thought you were going to talk been. about the cobalt. Did, did you see the cobalt things that Joe Rogan had? No. Where they, no. you know, in, in all of our phones and everything, there's cobalt. Right. And they were talking about the mines in Africa that are uh, unmanned mines, and they use machines to do it. And then the guy snuck in, and there's like five-year-old kids dragging up these bags for right. them to do it. Yeah, and, that's, and it's, that's bad. Yeah. Okay, so what, what were you saying? That's bad. And I'll tell you what's even worse. Though, what happened today? What, today, there was a news story that ran, and this has actually been uh, – this discovery took place about three years ago, but there has been a big, giant ass lithium deposit located on the Oregon. Uh, I thought you were going to say in uh, Nevada border. Oh, I, th- I thought you were going to say in Hawaii. No, no, no. <laughs> this beautiful town no, called Lahaina, Lahaina found a Lahaina massive lithium deposit. Lithium deposit under Lahaina. Yeah. Who would have known that? No, this is they they found a big giant ass lithium deposit which is going to renew these idiots calls for battery operated cars. And I'm I quit calling them electric cars yeah. a while back cuz they're not electric cars. A can opener is electric cuz it's plugged into the wall. Yeah. Your battery operated car was plugged into the wall but it now operates off of the wall so it's a battery operated car sure. it's not an electric car. Yeah. So now everybody's going to say, well, look, we've got all this lithium. Now we can make. But you're ignoring the fact that it won't work. It can't work. The arithmetic yeah. dictates that it can't fucking work. Yeah. You can't, especially when you won't even entertain the idea of nuclear power. Oh, my God. My God. What? You know, if yeah. you don't need any other. Uh, indication that all of this is just politics yeah then you look at the you know why can't we talk about nuclear yeah why not what is it that you guys have why do you guys have a hard on for nuclear power what the hell is wrong with nuclear power yeah you know we there's not a disposal issue there hasn't been a disposal issue in 40 years they, they always bring up chernobyl you know, Chernobyl was operated by the communist Russians, not us. Right? That's mm-hmm. a. Have you seen that film? Yeah, that's that's pretty cool. Isn't yeah, yeah. No, you, it's well. You, you got a whole bunch of people that are so thoroughly embedded in a bureaucratic mindset that they cannot see the arithmetic. Yeah. Right. And but the this waste nuclear waste disposal is not a problem. Yeah. It's not a problem. It never has been a problem. There's a perfectly logical way to dispose of nuclear waste. You, you, and I, you know, I saw this. Didn't they have? I a, saw this on sixty minutes about forty years ago. I saw a, pro, a, a a program on how they how they can do this, and and what they do is they take the spent rods and they chop them up, and they 
put it in concrete. Yep. They put it in concrete, and then they mold the concrete into the shape of like a torpedo with a point on one end and veins on the other end, and they take it out into the middle of the Pacific Ocean where there nobody is, and there's 20,000 feet of water column, and on the bottom of the ocean is 20 or 30 feet of oceanic ooze, which is, you know, silt and organic material and stuff, and you drop them off the back of the ship, and they go through 20,000 feet of water, bury themselves in 20 or 30 feet of mud, and they're gone. They're gone. The next thing that happens to them is they enter a subduction zone in 50 million years. But they're gone. There's no way to find them. There's no way to recover them. Why would you want to spend the money on that? And it's not a problem. It's not a problem. There's That's international waters. There's nothing prohibiting you from doing that. They're not dangerous. They're insulated from the rest of the planet for eternity. But no, we can't do that. No, See? it's interesting. I mean, uh, we're, we are in definitely uh, interesting times in that way. Yes, we are. In fact, we're one plus one equals whatever you need it to be right yeah oh shit i just man i i don't know i don't know so you want to talk about training shit yeah let's talk about training (laughs) so yeah i i uh talk about that all the time no i mean i uh like i said i uh went to berkeley um you know we had a pretty good strength coach again mayor cohen and uh, Eric Hohn uh, was kind of a power lifter, had worked at Wazoo, or uh, sorry, uh, not Wazoo, at uh, um, University of Washington, like Steve Etman, and uh, was a real talented strength coach. Um, he ends up, you know, we ended up not doing as well. So then, of course, you know, they got to give the sacrificial lamb, kill the strength coach. And they brought in a guy named Todd Rice. And a lot of my training today stems back from those ex- original experiences in college and, mm-hmm. and Todd Rice, so much so that uh, the uh, uh, you're going to laugh at this, but Coach Rice now works as the private training coach for the Busa brothers, who highest paid defensive play, uh, defensive players in the NFL. He just signed a massive, uh, you know, the Busa brothers who play defensive end. I don't know if you know NFL football. I don't know. His brother just signed like a $150, $200 million never, deal. But he's never been terribly interesting to me, but I got, I really got it out of my fucking system when everybody started taking the knee for the national anthem. Yeah. And that, that you, they have no idea how much damage they did to that, to the, how much damage they did to the organization that were writing them those great big checks. Well, so you know? so here's a you're, you're going to laugh at this. So when I came in the NFL, uh, we never came out for the national anthem. Right. So yeah. It, so when uh, we and that's we, perfectly we, reasonable. We would go out and they would sing the national anthem and we'd hear the jets fly over. National and the whole anthem day. is it, not for the players; it's for the fans. Yeah. So it wasn't until 9/11 hit. And they had like the big flags and all that that they started right. bringing us out. And what happened was, you know, America this and the you know, military started writing checks to the NFL so that they, that we had to be out there. So, I mean, for the most part, like that's something that's relatively new. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I also think that you know, while I believe within my core about this country, you have life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Right. Uh, but I also believe that, you know, as a employee of the NFL, you have the distinct uh, responsibility to honor 
and to you know act accordingly. Yes. And so I like you know when people start sure. talking about protesting and this and this, I, I I think that there's you know different ways to protest. I uh, I've always appreciated but like not at uh, like, work. Yeah. No, but like you know like uh, guys right. you know not that I'm a LeBron James fan at all, uh, but you know like going in and starting community centers and like going in and boys clubs and like doing things to invoke change that mm-hmm. look like from a community standpoint. Uh, God, what was the guy that started all that? The terrible quarterback for the Niners. Oh, that. Um, oh, oh sh- yeah, Colin Kaepernick. Yeah, yeah, he uh, uh, he was fucking awful. Oh, he's and just it, an awful no, human being. No, no, and no, an awful football. No, player. yeah, I'm talking about as a football player, right? And uh, you know, like he, you know, likes to blame it on all this. No, it was the fact that you weren't good. You're and if not you good and, at your, and if you want to be really uh, impactful, go out and win a Super Bowl, and then get on your soapbox. Right, you know, don't take all this shade. Oh, and do yeah. you remember all of these people that said, "Oh, he deserves a chance"? What does that even mean? Let me tell you about the NFL. If you can play, they will forgive. I mean, you remember, uh, you know, I mean, look at uh, Ray Lewis made the Hall of Fame. Ray Lewis was implicated in a murder, multiple yeah. murders, and was in that. I mean, Ray Lewis. You know, think about that. Ray Rice. Uh, they cut a deal with Ray Rice, and then until they showed the video of him punching his girlfriend in that elevator, which might be the most insanely violent thing I've ever seen. Yeah, that, he was that fine. Was, that was they uh, like like they they saw it. They said, "You're all right. You'll you'll take this." And it wasn't until it got leaked and they had like the court of public opinion that they banned they, it. They had. Yeah. they had. So the NFL is will make a lot of concessions for people if you can play for the game. Performance. Yeah, won't they? Yeah. So to say that they're Colin Kaepernick, they're keeping him out for these reasons. No. Keep, nah, it's, that's bullshit. They kept him out because he can't play. Some wanted if somebody wanted to hire him so he could help them win football games yep. which is their job yeah then that then they would have but well look at Aaron you know. Rodgers right Aaron Rodgers uh you know they had the big thing about the vaccination and everybody has to get vaccinated Aaron Rodgers didn't get the vaccination good for right? him and then also he goes down and he talks about you know doing ayahuasca and all this other stuff which there's a drug policy in the NFL and you know this was a nothing happened you know, unfortunately, you know, Golden hurt Bird. yesterday. Or yeah, something. that was right. a bad deal. He ruptured it. Well, yesterday, ruptured his Achilles tendon that on was the fourth a play. Complete rupture. Complete rupture. I I looked at that video two or three times, and you can see the step. Well, but it you was it was it, so it, routine. It, it, yeah, yeah. It like, looked like you. It it just you looked know. like the guy pulled him around the ankles, and he just right. kind of fell down. It wasn't it, it wasn't overly dramatic. It wasn't a big hit. It wasn't one like he stomped his foot or popped no, up. He just went down. It's hard to see. Yeah. In fact, it's yeah. hard to see. And then he went down, and the step right before he went down, since I ruptured an Achilles tendon, I'm real sensitive to this shit, and I saw him, I saw his heel drop. Hmm. And that's a that's a bad deal. Yeah. That's a real bad deal. Especially be 38 years old and have that injury. That's, uh, he's done. You know? It'd be, uh, he's he, done. Well, you know, ho- hopefully uh, the miracles of modern medicine will be able to bring him back. Depends on where the rupture is. Yeah. If he evulsed it off of the calcaneus, he's done. Yeah. If if the rupture occurred in the mid tendon, you can put a whole bunch of suture in that and rehab it real hard and be back in. Oh, it's going to take him eight or ten months at least to start running and to get, get back to get to where he can get back in shape to play. And at the age of thirty-eight. Yeah, well, is... but what's wild is, uh, you know, all of a sudden, you know, in that fourth play, the Jets fans were ready to, you know, cash it all in, and then they came back and win in overtime. Yeah, uh, the game was good. I, I stayed up and watched it. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, I hope the guy's okay, but uh, yeah. Well, I mean, is, uh, even if his career ended last night, I mean, he's still one of the best to ever do it, and he's a shooter well, for the Hall of Fame. And and he had the balls to tell him no. Yeah, I'm not going to take your fucking shot. Yeah, that was real important. Well, he he he, he, he was like, uh, what did he say? I'm uh, uh, I'm not vac. Oh, I'm I'm immunitized from it. It was what he kept saying. He yeah, was like, I'm oh, I'm, uh, yeah. Or have you taken it? He's like, well, I'm immunitized from it. And then they went back and figured out he hadn't had it. Yeah. Uh, it was pretty heady. Uh, he's smart. I mean, he's a Berkeley guy. He's a golden bear. <laughs> I wouldn't expect anything less. <laughs> well, I'm proud of him, though. Yeah. No, I, I was proud of him for that. That was, that no, was I, good. Uh, I've yeah. always been, uh, you know, not, not because he went to Cal, but I always thought he was a great player, and he's always been one of the best. So yeah. I, uh, I appreciate But I was hoping he was going to go to New York and tear it up this year and actually give the Jets, who are usually the worst, oh, a chance to be good. Yeah. But it's just too damn bad. It's just too damn bad that happened. But, God, it's just part of the fucking game, you know. I mean, yeah. how many times – how many seasons did you play where you weren't hurt? Uh, my rookie year, first uh, first did you start. Get hurt? So first start of my NFL career, I came in as a rookie, started as a rookie, and ruptured my patellar tendon in that very first game. Wow! So I had hurt my knee, kind of dinged it up a little bit, my patellar tendon in uh, training camp. Came out, started right tackle, stepped inside, caught a seam on the on the turf, and uh, I felt like somebody shot me from the third row, which I was mm-hmm. in Philly, so technically I might have been shot. And I remember looking down, yeah. and uh, my kneecap was sitting about three inches too high into the right, and was sitting up on my VMO, and they uh, stitched it up, and I uh, ended up rehabbing a whole year and came back and started 16 games that next year. So and it held. It held, and um, but you know, um, took a helmet to the leg, uh, broke my fibula clean in half, casted me for five days, and I played three weeks later and played 20, 20 weeks with a broken leg. Wow! They told me that you don't need that bone to play football. <laughs> Seriously. So they, well, there's a, you don't need the long head of your biceps, yeah. For example, to do anything, yeah. And uh, so yeah, I played a lot of weeks. Interestingly with enough, I ruptured both of mine. Yeah. So, uh, like, football is an interesting game in that way, and uh, you know, you basically set your body on the on the funeral pyre of uh, pro football and set it ablaze. And some people come out fine on the other side, and other people come out a little more damaged. Well, uh, how many players in the NFL do you think have a torn ACL, an unrepaired torn ACL? Forty percent. Well, um, so the the NFL changed in two thousand and nine. Yeah. So I played uh, right at the end of the era, where you know I like when I came in the NFL in ninety nine two thousand, like it was still kind of old school era. I mean there were a lot of hits, a lot of it, it was a, a much different game. And then all of a sudden at the end I retired in two thousand and nine. So I got hurt in 08, and then I retired in 09, and then that was the lockout year. And then the new CBA came in, where all of a sudden the rules changed. Now right. all of a sudden it went to a passing league. You couldn't hit. I mean they were taking the pads off. I mean when I played for Dick Vermeil, we were in pads for you know twice a day. Three hours a day, six hours a day, uh, seven days a week for you know 20, 25 days in training camp, and we did that, and we were praying to get to preseason just so we could take the pads off. Uh, now you know they might have I think it's five padded practices in training camp, and you know maybe seventeen over the course of the season. So what so, what about it changed? Well, so the rules. Well, the rules changed, but the the level of hitting was so removed from practice. That you know, like people were like like the damage happens in the game. It's it's always going to be right. there, right? But the the amount of volume of hitting that they pulled out of practice made everybody extremely fresh. And I think a lot of the injuries that you see within the first couple of weeks of, of the season come from like 
guys not doing the amount of contact early on. So I mean, the, in other words, they are too fresh healthy enough to hit you real, real, real hard. hard. Yeah. Right. So I, yeah. I believe what happened, because there was so much hitting and there was so much contact early on, by the time he got to the first game, everybody was like a soft-boiled egg, right? Everybody was at 80%. And so that was the speed people were playing at. Right. And then over the course of the season, people get more and more healthy. You also get better. People hardened up. Yeah. Uh, but now people are the guys are so fresh because uh, you know they come in in shape and there's a, you know the hitting's reduced that way like you're going to see so much speed and uh, like just a lot of contact. That's why you always see all these ruptured ACLs and you see a lot of torn Achilles and there's a, a, a speed coach named. Um, uh, Derek Hansen, who was uh, one of Charlie Francis's apprentice, mm-hmm. and he always does a great job of outlining all the injuries and how they relate to, to turf, and just from the fact that there's, it's impossible to condition your body for what you're going to see on Sunday with a, a massive reduced load in, in training camp. In training. But they have to, because right. with, the, with the amount of money they're paying these guys, they're not paying them to get hurt in training camp. So it's no, kind of a you no, know I it's, see the it's and then, conundrum. It's and, a, and then you also have an issue where you got guys like Junior Seau like putting a gun in their chest and shooting themselves and leaving a note saying, "Look at my brain, something is wrong." Right. You know, and uh, you know Junior for me was you know gave me my welcome to the NFL moment. I went to, when I went to the Pro Bowl. Junior drank me under the table, took me under his wing, and so him committing suicide was massively impactful. And really, just kind of started me down the path of like, how do I heal my brain? How do I make sure that right. this doesn't happen? Well, and, your uh, brain is obviously healed at this point, but uh, and then some. Let's yeah. So that's a that's a, you've got an interesting insight into this. Yeah, into the brain injuries and football situation. Tell us about. So when I retired, so when I retired from the NFL, um, uh, you know, so I had. Uh, you know, obviously graduated in four years and then got my ma- or worked on my master's in my fifth. Uh, you're going to laugh at this, but uh, part of my master's thesis was uh, had to be done while I was in the NFL. So my Herb Simons wanted me to write my master's thesis, which is why do players, you know, if we assume education is how people pull themselves out of poverty and destitute, why is it that young athletes are so willing to forego to go to the, to go to professional sports? Right. And we all know the answer. But the exercise had to be done, and he wanted me to write it from a college and a professional deal. And then I, I uh, because of some things I said, I wasn't allowed to come back and hand it in. <laughs> so higher education, right? right. But uh, there was also a scholarship that I was interested in to go to uh, UC Berkeley's Bolt Hall. Um, now it's just called Berkeley Law. Um, and Adrian Cragen scholarship for a four-year letterman. So that's what I was kind of gearing up for. And then I got drafted to go play. And I figured I'd play for a year or two and go back to law school, and that turned into 10. Right. So when I retired, I kind of fired my stuff back up and started looking at law schools and kind of start starting that, that initial piece. And just about that time is when Greg Glassman called me and asked me to help come develop their technology on how to train athletes with CrossFit football. Mm-hmm. And I remember uh, thinking this might be good to do for a little bit of time while I kind of tend to maybe – fix some of the damage that might have happened because the only analogy I can give for it is imagine you have like a big bucket of soapy water right and you put a t-shirt on in there like in the 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 sopping wet t-shirt and soapy water that's the analogy I think about how my brain felt when I retired from the NFL yeah I just felt like a soppy soapy t-shirt in a bucket of like warm water and uh when I so your your perceptions you think were altered yeah and Vision well, and well, hearing and everything, or just 100%. Thinking. 
Yeah, it was it was a hundred percent because when I went back and pulled out my laptop and all my uh, my thesis stuff and everything that I've been working on, and I read what I uh, the what I had written before, right? I was not able to do that. Uh, just cognitively, I didn't have the the capacity, right. right? I probably hadn't sharpened in the blade as much as I should have, right. but I just knew that I wasn't. And a big part of cross of football for me and doing the initial deal that I did was like I felt that that was my opportunity to go out and resharpen my blade. That I was going to read, I was going to write, I was going to like you know develop seminars and get on my feet and just, speak. Just work the brain. Yeah, and let I fig- it heal. Yeah, make it heal. Make it heal. And so about that time, once I started uh, traveling and doing that, I was reached out by, um, through the NFL, Dr. Amen uh, from the Amen Clinics, who kind of quacky, if I like now, I look through social media, but had a real high-end kind of brain center in Newport Beach. Mm -hmm. So they reached out and they asked if I would be in a brain study for Dr. Amen. So they came in, did all this brain mapping and CT scans and MRIs and had to sit in all these groups. And I get to the very end of the testing. And we sit down, and he's like, you know, we got good news and bad news, which is what always people say to you. What do you want first? Uh, I'll take the good news first, right? And he goes, well, of everybody that we tested, you were the smartest person we tested. Right. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, like, of everybody? He's like, well, the NFL guys. I'm like, all right. That's like being, like, the best-looking <laughs> of the ugly kids, right? And I was like, all right. So uh, cognitively, I'm pretty high. I'm the smartest dude they tested. But the bad news, the part of your brain that's damaged is over here on the frontal lobe, this part of this brain that doesn't light up, and this is where your brain damage is, and this mm-hmm. is the part of your brain that deals with sympathy and empathy and emotion. And as I was listening to him, I was like, wait a minute. And so he's getting into, like, all these things you can do, and I was like, can I get, like, a doctor's note on this? Because there's no way my, my wife and my mom are going to believe that I actually have a brain condition that makes me an insensitive asshole. Because you've never been an insensitive yeah. <laughs> Never, never. You've right. never, never been. been an insensitive. I've known right. 15 yeah. years. Yeah. And, uh, That's yeah. not a description <laughs> for you. So uh, I, as I sat down, uh, and then I, they, they put us into these kind of general groups of other NFL players, and I'm sitting around with these groups, and, and I'm listening to these fucking pity party. You know, this guy's 400 pounds. This guy's got early onset Alzheimer's. Right. And, right. and I'm, like, sitting in this group of people, and I kind of got a, a bit of a panic attack that, you know, you're the sum of the people you're around. So I just stood up and I said, thank you for uh, for everything you've done. I'll never hear from me again. And I fucking walked out of that place and left that pity party behind. And the first thing I did is I called Matt Lalonde. Now, if you remember Matt Lalonde, I said, Matt, I have a brain deal. And I explained it to him. And I was like, what can I do? So he called me back a day or two later and said, I pulled 10,000 research articles. And we looked at this. And I think you should start with a ketogenic diet. So I um, researched a ketogenic diet and proceeded to eat a ketogenic diet and didn't eat a carb for almost two years. Right. And by the end of that, I remember Rob Wolf had called me and I started to feel a lot better, like just cognitively a little sharper, you know, and some of the effects. And we started, you know, supplementation and I I started going down. It was fish oil and, you know, a lot of the, you know, the creatine, which I think I'm the longest continuous creatine user on the planet. I started when I was 14, 10 10 grams of creatine a day since I was 14 years old. Uh, And and now we know creatine is a massive neuroprotectant. So uh, creatine, fish oil, and, uh, you know, I started traveling and teaching and having to, to lecture and present and create, and I was effectively forcing myself to do things.
things that I was nervous to do because I worried that what if I didn't have the cognitive ability to have to go out and, you know, show up on a Friday with a backpack or, you know, a bag and walk in and meet a brand new gym of people and, you know, do your best to stand up and right. educate them and wow them and then get back on. And we, I mean, you did it. Like, that's what's what's interesting is there's a few people, you know, Kelly Starrett, you, me, uh, Bergner, and, you know, a handful of others that did that at mass scale and, you know, did it and had the ability to not only execute it, but do it well to actually get people to come more and more. Right. Uh, and, you know, there was blogs, there was, uh, you know, information. Like I was, you know, you came in with starting strength and your linear progression and, you know, what you taught. I didn't know what the fuck I was teaching. I had to literally create it in real time. Right. You know, what you see for power athlete and fostering developing athleticism, none of that existed when they asked me to do cross the football. All of this developed like on the fly, teaching seminars, trying to figure out my technology and, you know, writing. I mean, the, my blog, Talk to Me Johnny, with hundreds of, of, of entries based on questions, programming, you know, training athletes. I mean, this kind of, you know, splinter in my mind, this Neo moment uh, fostered because I was forced to go up and do this. Right. And uh, I don't like to look stupid. And, you know, there was a, a real issue. So it started me down the road of this, um, you know, like the, the thing that if I can remove the stimulus that's damaging my brain, which I is football, right? You can put on a helmet. And I'm going to use it as a weapon and smash, um, you know, remove, uh, you know, the gut brain barrier. Now, all of a sudden, I'm going to clean up the diet and, and see if I can fix it that way. And then there were other other things that we looked at. And that really started me down the fact of, of learning and, uh, you know, everything from, uh, you know, going to a, uh, Ralphing to get myofascial release to remove some of the fascia in my head because the skull was so tight, seeing Dr. Bueller and doing some of the cranial manipulations. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of those things were just a piece. And then the the real big one was after I had shoulder surgery, I went to, down to Arizona to go see Tom Inkledon, who's from Cosenta. He's one of my uh, doctor buddies. And he did uh, this treatment with exosomes. So he injected exosomes in the shoulder and then did an IV at exosomes. And about 12 hours after they did it, whatever inflammation was left in the brain just was fucking wiped away. So the exosomes are real small, move across the blood-brain barrier and removed whatever inflammation was going on in my skull. And you could feel that happening? It was night and day. I was sitting there and it was like all of a sudden I felt this warm buzzing feeling, like I'd had a drink, but I hadn't had a drink. And we started, like, I was having a conversation and it was almost like an out of a little bit of an out of body where I was like in my head thinking, man, you sound a lot sharper than you've ever been. <laughs> and that didn't leave me for six months. But, and so that, that was a big piece. And then we did a bunch of cognitive testing and I started working with these guys from um, a NeuroWave and they did a bunch of, uh, of scans. Yeah. And what's ironic or not ironic, but just fortuitous, let's say. So Nick Hardwick, who played center for the San Diego Chargers, was in town uh, last year to for South by Southwest. So he reached out to me and said, hey, I'm coming to town. I'm going to speak on this panel on brain health. Would you come and hear me speak? And I have this deal with myself where if another professional athlete or NFL player reaches out and asks for me to be somewhere or to do something, I say yes and I do it. Because professional athletes tend to be flaky as fuck. Mm-hmm. Like the flakiest people on the planet. Oh yeah, yeah, And then they never show. Right. And I, I, do, I don't want to be flaky. I think one of the greatest things that people can say about you is that you showed the fuck up when I asked you to be right. there. You're a man of your word. Man, man of your word. And most dudes aren't. Because out of right. fear or whatever. So he asked me to be there. I'm great. So then he comes to town. He's like, you don't have to be there. I'm like, stop giving me a fucking out. I'll be there. So he gets up and he sits on this panel and this guy's showing EEG scans and going through this whole deal. And I'm listening to it and I'm thinking, fuck, this sounds really familiar. So after 
uh, the uh, the panel gets done. I walk over, talk to the doctor. I'm like, you know, this sounds super familiar. It just so happened that in 2013, when I was living in Newport Beach, a bunch of the seals were coming up to Newport Beach. There was a place called the research, the Brain Research Center, and what they were doing is a DoD study scanning uh, these EEG, these brain scans, to see if they could find like what brain type all of the seals had. So then when they went to selection, they could pre-select guys out that didn't have the right brain scan. So uh, after these guys kept coming up, uh, finally I said, I want to go. Like, let's go over there and meet these people. So I went over, I met them, and they were like, oh, we do this for the NFL, and we have professional athletes. Would you be in our study? So I was in the study, and they scanned my brain. And they not only did the scan, but they also did mapping. And the guy found that this part of my brain was damaged, which coincides with what Eamon said. So then all of a sudden, 10 years later, I'm at this deal with Nick Hardwick. And as the guy's telling the information, I'm like, I was at this deal. And the guy's like, we're the Brain Research Center. And my name's, you know, Dr. Eric Wan. And, you know, the guys that you dealt with have since retired and moved on and playing golf in Palm Springs, let's say. But, like, this is amazing because, you know, like, you did this 10 years ago. So he asked me to come and get rescanned the next day. And they pulled my original scan so from 10 years, and now 10, years. 10 years later. And when they scanned me, they found that not only did where my peak is, because he sat down, he's like, over 10 years, we're going to see the peak move this way and this. And he gave me all this stuff. My peak actually moved back, which means that I de-aged my brain in 10 years. My peak was sharper, which means more efficient and actually went higher. Mm-hmm. And everything was better. And the guy was like, when they put him up side by side, he started, he's like, it's backwards. And the guy's like, no, that's the new scan. And the doctor was like, shit. So then he sat down. He sat down and said, what did you do? So I went through everything from, you know, like talking about the exosomes and what we were doing for health and training and performance and cognitive function. And I laid him out this entire plan of what I've done. And then he has a a device that actually is like a helmet with magnets. And they can do some rebalancing. And they're using it for PTSD and actually brain injury. Mm -hmm. So I just got done testing that for the last three months. And I went back and got rescanned, and they found that I was able to actually make my brain even more efficient. So now here I am, you know, smarter, or at least hopefully, uh, than I've been. But um, I feel that if you create the right stimulus, you put yourself in the right environment, mm-hmm. and you don't take a bunch of fucking opiates and a bunch of drugs and smoke yourself retarded. Uh, and I don't mean that in like a bad way, but like, you know, I played with a lot of guys that smoked a ton of weed mm-hmm. and I've, you know, uh, you know, not that I'm against that. Um, it just felt that when you do that, you are less intelligent and it wasn't helping. I've so, known too many people uh, that smoke dope every day and they're operating at 85%. Yeah, even That's less. It. Well, uh, Kyle Turley, who was a great friend of mine when I played in the NFL, um, you know, Kyle had early onset Alzheimer's, got diagnosed in his 30s, and felt that, you know, cannabis and marijuana would save him. And, um, you know, for him, it's allowed him to manage some of the anxiety and other things. But I just don't think that cannabis is going to save the world the way he does. No, 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 no. And so he used to talk to me about it. Anybody that says that is selling it. Well, he does. And, uh, you know, Kyle's a a great person. But uh, for him, you know, he has a lot of other kind of psychological issues that it manages. For me, I don't have those issues. No. Um, But, you know, exercise, you know, and all the other key things that we were doing, Mm -hmm. uh, I believe, have really helped it. But one of them is also a constant thirst for learning Mm -hmm. and the ability to engage in discourse and have intelligent conversations, whether it be on a podcast or in person or whatever it is, and to be, you know, coherent enough and civil enough to get up and present and be able to go back and forth. Right. You know, that I think that human interaction, because what happens to a lot of people, especially men as they age, this (coughs) is this is why the suicide uh, rates of men are through the roof is because 
because as men tend to age, they become crystallized in their brain, right? And then all of a sudden, they become kind of this isolated kind of solo, uh, you know, lone wolves where they kind of isolate themselves and they don't have any community structures and they feel very alone and they don't have necessarily outlets. And I think, uh, you know, I was I make the joke that if you're lonely, go join jujitsu. You'll have a bunch you get a bunch of hugs every day you go. Right. But, you know, doing something competitive, having friends, having conversation. That's why it's important to come up here and do this right. opposed from just sitting in my house doing it on Zoom. It feels fucking lazy to me. <laughs> I'll get in the car and drive to come see my friend and, and bullshit with the guys. And uh, just for the fact that, like, that's what you should do. Yeah. Like and, uh, and and you know when you said it, I'm like, don't give me the, an easy way out. And Nick texted me and he's like, good, <laughs> don't take the easy way out. I'm like, I don't. I never take the easy way out. No, no. I was just trying to save you some gas, I know. but I know how broke you are. All <laughs> right, so money's so tight. Do you find that you learn about what you're explaining while you explain it? Like, um, like when I when I present, you know, six times a year we do these seminars, and I, I, uh, I've got at least two, probably three lectures during the course of the seminar. Every time I give uh, a lecture, something will occur to me. Oh, yes, that has not occurred to me before. Uh, yeah, I I have so. Um, this is another hilarious deal, but I have moments in time that have crystallized to the point where I remember them as if like I can remember the smell of the room. Right. So there's been, and, and this has happened to me my entire life and Zach Evanish, who I, I don't know if you know Zach, but Zach is like, I cannot believe that you have these vivid memories. And I'm like, for some reason, certain moments in my life have crystallized to the point where I can remember what I was wearing, where I was sitting, and what it smelled like, and everything about the room, and I can wow. replay these memories. One of them, which I was uh, 17, 18 years old, and I was sitting in a small office in uh, Berkeley at Bolt Hall. Uh, the uh, dean, former dean of law school, is an old guy named Adrian Cragen, who had been, you know, an old attorney, had since retired, and still, you know, went to, had a little office that he'd go to. They ended up bringing me to meet with him, as you know, because I was interested in going to law school. My dad was a lawyer, my brothers are lawyers, it's our family business. And as I sat down with Adrian. Craigan, um, we found that like the old lawyer that apprenticed my dad was a friend of his kind of, you know, of course you sit down with, you know, mm. like-minded people and you find that, you know, there's one degree of separation right. and he made a great point to me. He said, you cannot learn to think until you learn to read and write. If you want to learn to think, you have to go, you have to learn to read and write to the best of your ability because reading and writing will allow you to create your thought process, right. refine it, refine it, refine it. Absolutely. He said only a fool will speak before they read and they write. No, and it, no that's, that's absolutely so true. I, mean, I, I write everything. When I, when I sit down to write an article, which I do every couple of weeks, I'll write an article. I'd have, I've produced some stuff over the past, you know, six or eight months that I thought was pretty good, you know, but I produce it on paper. Yeah. Well, on my, you know, on my computer, I type it and then I go, hmm, all right, and I read it again and I make corrections. Yeah. And I leave it alone, come back the next day, read it again. Oh, there's some shit in here I yeah. need to add. And I'll do that two or three times. And then it's ready. Yeah. And I've taught myself something. Yeah. From forcing myself yeah. to articulate these ideas in a in a in in sentences and complete thoughts and where does the paragraph start, where does the paragraph end, that kind of thing. Yeah. That that level of organization teaches me yeah. 
more about what I know. Or and then when you get up to present, so if if I um, you know am presenting or I'm on something or a panel right. or whatnot, and somebody asks me a question that I do not know the answer to or I haven't thought enough about, I tell them, and I, I learned this one from Jordan Peterson. Uh, it's an interesting question. I haven't thought about that enough. I don't know. And if I were to give right. you an answer, it would be uh, off the cuff and would not be of substance. Half ass. Yeah. yeah. And, and you know what? Like, and then you go home and you sit down and you do this exercise where I, I write the question out and then I start kind of reading different things and researching, going through you know the rabbit hole of information and mm-hmm. see what I like and what I don't like. And you write all this out and then you come up right. with a formulated argument. You know, you start with the question and then you know mm-hmm. you start the you know rhetorical process to be able to argue your point. Yep. And I did all of that in you know for the CrossFit football seminar. Right, and we started with teaching the power athlete, and what does this look like in the pyramid, and all these pieces that I created uh, over time, and effectively went in and tested new things, tried, and then I had you know live studio audience for feedback, and you end up kind of doing this in real time, and then you know blogs and podcasts and all these other stuff, and you get to have these intelligent conversations with smart people, mm-hmm. but uh, I really hope that the world could take a step back and I feel so many people talk without thinking or reading and writing and doing this. They just, bleh. and I hear people vomit information right. out where that just has no substance right. or they're just regurgitating other people's talking points. Well, or they hadn't really, it's just disorganized shit. You well, know? And it's, here's a piece that makes perfect sense. But why'd you say this here? Well, this doesn't make any sense. Get rid of this and keep this and expand on this. Well, the fundamentals of uh, you know rhetorical arguments stem back from ethos, pathos, and logos. You know, the Greeks you know put these three different pieces together. Ethos is really my background, who I am. The pathos is the uh, you know the emotional appeal to something, and the log- and then the logos is obviously the logical appeal. So this is how arguments are done. Um, what I feel is so important is the pathos and the logos are built upon your ethos. So you, as an individual, can speak as an expert because you have done this. Mm -hmm. So the problem with the internet is the ethos is very rarely created and very rarely uh, do people have a foundational background to be able to argue points. Like people want to come to you and they the want to argue or argue with you on strength and conditioning. And you're like, great. The, the ethos show, is, pro- is, is show frequently me, fraud. Show me the body you know? of work that you've done. Like I talked about, right. we had we had our collected this weekend and I presented a case study of a program and a developed and working with these, you, right. know, uh, you know, top Brazilian jiu-jitsu players in the world and taking a world champion and helping him become a greater world champion. And, uh, you know, being a piece in his journey uh, you know and then I what I did is I chronicled all of it this is where they started this is the finish these are the pieces that I added these were the things that really made a massive difference and presented this for what I, I hope is what I call our master coach which is taking an athlete on a journey and seeing them compete at the highest level and being victorious and right. like you know and um, so I presented this weekend and there were uh, people had a lot of questions like you know how'd you where to, you know how'd you know where to start Start with the basics. Where do you start with everybody? You know, uh, treat you know treat everybody as a beginner. Empty bar. Yeah, an empty bar. You know, and uh, you know Victor had a L4 L5 back injury, so any form of axial loading was shutting him down. So instead of being like, all right, well then we moved to the belt squad and we found you know single leg movements and RDLs and had to find different variations to effectively allow him to get strong to us to be able to do more basic movements. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the law of specificity was like, okay, I need him to move well. Now, what allows him to move well? And I think 
the problem is, is you go into a situation like that, you know, you need more than just a hammer. And this was just a kind of a unique approach that I went to where now all of a sudden you're dealing with high level athletes that have some injuries and some history and what we have to do. And, uh, you know, the standard models were a little bit different. And, you know, also how I understand athleticism is from like a standing position. Now all of a sudden these guys are in a 360 gyroscope. And I had this idea that, you know, the positions I understand for fostering and developing athleticism, do they exist in all these different planes of motion, supine, you know, uh, prone and here and up and, you know, right. and we had great carryover. And it was, uh, it was awesome to be able to present the body of work, but it also took me a year to do it. Right. And it was a year working with these guys anywhere from three to four days a week. Um, when they came to train with me, I was like, there'll be no money. I just need you to show up and give me 100% and not worry about it. And when we get to the end, we'll figure it out. And I, because I knew that if like there was like, uh, you know, if all of a sudden we start trading money, there would be entitlement. I was like, I'll do it for free, but you guys have to show up on time. You have to give me 100% and you never question anything. And I, and I was able to get those and they were like in because they were 20 something kids had never done this stuff and they were 100% in and they were extremely hardworking and resilient. And these guys have a focus to be the best in the world. And they showed up and we absolutely crushed it. I remember that you introduced a concept to me a long time ago that I found to be extremely useful, the concept of field strength. Yeah. And uh, you talked about it, and I got to thinking about that, and I realized that that feel, the concept of field strength, I think that's kind of intuitively obvious to, to people that are listening about field strength. You How... how do you apply the strength that you have obtained in the weight room to its application in a performance? Yeah. And that that is field strength. And what it basically boils down to is your ability, and this is this is a function of having the strength from the basic lifts, from squats, deadlifts, presses, benches, having the strength, but applying it in a position where you're off balance. Yeah. yeah. In other words, on one foot. Yep. Or the center of mass is not over the center of balance, yep. but you're still able to Or you might have a round back. You might have you know? a round back. You might have a you might have yep. a, you might be out here yep. where you'd rather be in here. But I've since evolved that I call it uh, density. Yeah. Um, because uh, uh, what I found was that as we started to train, so I had this uh, like incredible, not epiphany, but it was more just like I said, like the, the neo splinter in the mind. Mm-hmm. Why did I see guys in the weight room that were so strong? And when I went out and played against them, I didn't feel any of that strength. Right. You know, I watched a guy bench 600 pounds for reps and he couldn't break a pillow, you know? Um, mm-hmm. Why is it that every ounce of strength that I gained in the weight room, I was able to translate two or three fold on the field? Right. And uh, I, I realized pretty, you know, just trying to figure this out when you watch people move, your ability to maintain posture and position as you're moving through space and then, you know, maintain these positions to, and also be able to generate force, use compensatory acceleration and, you know, stiffness and, and really just my maintain that posture and position and generate force was the deal. You know, I'd see guys that were real strong, they get out of position and then they couldn't use their strength. And I really think it came back to, you know, the only thing I could, the analogy I talk about is tensile strength, the folding of the steel, the steel gets certain strong. Like that steel only comes from being heated, being pounded, being folded and cooled. So there has to be a training stimulus. And 
the training stimulus is the, is the generation of the force production yeah. capacity, and then the practice stimulus is learning to apply that in non-advantageous positions. Yeah, uh, some ch- of it, some of that ability is absolutely is genetic. Uh, ch- Chuck so, Vogerpold used to call it. I remember I, I heard him talking about uh, when we were out at Westside. These guys were talking about chaos training, mm-hmm. so they were purposely l- misloading the bars. Like, or they were putting a chain out farther or a band or taking a plate off and doing this. So what if you go into the powerlifting contest and the guy fucks up the load or something's not perfect? If the only time you can make the lift, and so he was kind of putting in this chaos training, and I thought that was an interesting, uh, you know, like point of, like it it was an interesting conversation, but we did a lot of that too. You're going to be on one leg. You're going to be in a bad position. You know, can you recover and get to a good position or do you even understand what a good position is? Can you maintain posture and position and your technique under load through force when you get hit in all these different conditions when it's muddy when it's cold when it's hot and that really became resilience and what i called like density you know like you go pick up a 200 pound sandbag it's full of pea gravel it's dense as fuck Mm. and like when you pick it up like that's how you want people that's like that density that thickness that density you you shake people's hands you feel their forearms like this guy's dense he's thick he's done the work right and there's no way to cheat that. And we call it what? Well, country strong. I'm mean, sure you, yeah, you you remember farm kids. Dad strong. Dad strong. You know, there's all kind of there's all kind of terms for it. But uh, what it really boils down to is the application of strength in less than ideal positions. Yes. Which are the norm. Yeah. Especially on the field. Yeah, I mean one one of the great ones. Uh, I've never like. I always thought kettlebells were just look like fucking cannonballs with handles. I was never a big kettlebell guy. But the one thing I do like about kettlebells is when you swing heavy kettlebells, it teaches you task-specific tension. Like think about like as you like generate force, like we have a 200-pound kettlebell. So when you swing that thing, there's only one way to swing it. Right. And like you'll figure it out real quick or you can't do it. But as you snap and you harness and you watch it kind of float you relax a little bit and then you have to like lock back up just like in boxing right Mm -hmm. like you kind of you're going to shoot your jab you relax it's relaxed and at the last minute it snaps out into a punch and so it's not like you're here but it's loose and it snaps same thing in football i move well and then i snap and i coil like a snake so that task specific tension i felt was really good with the kettlebell to teach how do people do it with their trunks mm-hmm. you know opposed from walking around all the time but then being able to relax and then tension right and and a big Go into tension when the tension's required yeah so people ask me do you like kettlebells i'm like i do like them for swinging them heavy ones for task specific tension like I, you know, so like thing like there's a, a practical application for everything, but then you have guys, and I'm sure you had guys that were you know kettlebell masters that came to your starting strength deal, and they actually shattered into a million pieces when you put a bar in the back. Oh yeah, I, I like we no. we had a guy come to our seminar that was a big kettlebell guy, and all of a sudden we asked him to lift weights, and like it was dude was shattering into a million pieces. We had a girl come to a seminar up in Brooklyn. I remember this a long time ago. Uh, she was like a national kettlebell champion, whatever that means. And that was the only person. And she's like 38 or 40. And we couldn't get her below parallel in the squat. Yeah. Not one rip. And I mashed on her ass and yelled at her and did everything I could think of to do. And I know a lot of things to think of to do. And I couldn't get her below parallel. So she joined the ranks of about 
four other 75 plus year old people who could not get below parity. <laughs> yeah, you, you know, kettlebells by themselves are just yeah, just submaximal high rep yeah. bullshit. We we use them a bunch for uh, like the real heavy ones for uh, you know some like suitcase deadlifts and like some like unilateral loading, which I think is really good for uh, for teaching balance and also for walking. And we yeah. do them in the warm ups. And you know, like that. we're talking about like accessory for athletes now. I think what's uh, what's interesting is now you're talking about like deviating from like starting strength and kind of the beginner population, well, and now you're developing tools for like you know right. high level athletes, which you require and I a, two, two completely different things. One hundred percent. This is this must be must be stated our job at starting strength is to take people who have not who are not strong now whether they're not strong because they're 18 and have never trained or whether they're 55 and they've never done anything or they're 70 and they haven't ever done yeah. anything and our our job is just to get them strong we don't work with athletes yeah we we are not concerned with athleticism. We don't do now. It's important for athletes to be strong, sure. and we get them strong in a way that applies to their sport. Yeah. But all of the other stuff that is involved in training high level athletes is not part of what we do. Yeah, that's not our gig. That's your gig. Yeah, and you know what? We can have an intelligent conversation as two people that work in completely different. Yes populations right I, I think what's uh, what's interesting is for some reason when people digest you on social media or the internet they feel that you're speaking to everybody and I think that's so important that you bring up that nuance you know and, that, and, that doesn't bother me nearly so much as the people that think that I'm speaking to power lifters yeah I don't give a fried fuck about power lifters yeah uh, they're not my. They're well, not but, my demographic. But I, is I, is is that uh, it, is that everybody who somehow they turn on the internet and think is I, I think it's narcissism. I think they're narcissists that every single statement made on the internet is somehow directed at them. Well, it's the the statement that is made is how many people has Rip ever sent to uh, the IWF. How many, how, many, how many people in the IPF have trained starting strength? How many athletes he sent, has he sent to that high-level competition? None. And you're not training That's not my before. job. Yeah. Well, then no, why? I, I can show you how to squat but better it, than the way your powerlifting coach is, showed you how to it, squat. But, but is that but, uh, it, like what's the – I mean, you're to, – to me, and I, I, I tell people all the time, you know, we had you on, on Power Athlete Radio. Uh, Rip has a very specific population, and yes. for his population, it's, it, it's perfect. It, right. it's, it's the exact population. If I wanted my mom and I told her, hey, I want you to start strength training, I'm sending her to a starting strength gym. Right. Right, because it's 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 one on one coaching. All we do. It's very basic. It's simple. It can be executed three days a week. It's all we need. It's not overly complicated. Right. And, and you know what? And and it's meant uh, to make people more durable as they age. I remember having a conversation uh, with uh, with at a uh, man. I've heard that name in a long oh time. God. And and at a at a seminar in in uh, uh, Santa Cruz. And uh, he said, you know, I, I, and we were talking about the deadlift, talking about the deadlift. And uh, he didn't have the slightest idea what I was talking about. But I, I think we need to do some vertical back deadlifts. 
Yeah, it's called the sumo deadlift. And uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, that's that's how you do it. Yeah, because otherwise you can't do it that way. Well, I, and, I, and he said, you know, was this the I, shoulders I, in front of the bar, the shoulders behind the bar argument? Yes. Which is and look, you can't pull a heavy weight with your shoulders behind the bar. That's not what happens. But I didn't know at the time why. And I told him, you're wrong. But I can't right now tell you why. But next time I see you, I will. Yeah. So they made me think about all of this stuff. Well, do you remember when I came and visited you? We watched hundreds of clips of people deadlifting. And from the side, the bar did not come under the, uh, off the ground until it was in like the crease of the armpit. That's right. Right, with the shoulders forward, crease of the armpit. If, it's, the if bar there's coming, enough weight on the bar. Yeah. Even when you they pull a snatch wrong, even when half of your deadlift. Even when they they rocked back, the minute the butt would come up, and then as soon and as the, the and then it would come off the ground, the minute it was under the crease of the right. armpit. That's right. And like I remember you being like, "Well, why don't we just start the deadlift there?" And I was like, "Seems like a pretty good idea." But yeah. You browbeat me like a lot of fucking video, and I was like, "I believe you. I've watched it over and over and over again." You, you unless you enough. do, unless you do a sumo. Right, and then the vertical chest—it looks like a squat. It looks you can, like your your back angle is in fact more vertical in sumo because of the width of the stance, yeah. which artificially shortens your legs. Yeah, but still, even in a sumo, the bar comes off the floor when the shoulders are a little bit in front of the bar, and that has to do with. It took me months to figure this out. What is the lat doing? when you pull the bar off the floor. And this is all in the book. What's the lat doing? And the lat is pulling back on the bar, keeping it over the middle of the foot. And the back angle is a function of the fact that the lat acts on, well, this is all boring bullshit that's in the book. It's the lat acts on the bar, on the arms at 90 degrees, and the resulting angles are very, very, very predictable. If, if, well, anthropometrical we're, ratios. We're do, it, even yep. given anthropometric ratios, a, a guy with short legs and a long back will still pull the bar off the floor. But when you look at him from the in front of the floor. But, when but, you, he, has, but very, he has a different back, back angle. angle. Back angles are not diagnostic. No, but what the back angles do is they set you up for where the most advantageous position to pull from. So if you're short leg, right. longer torso, you're going to have a more vertical back angle when it sits under the crease of the armpit. And then if you have long leg, short torso, you're going right. to have a flatter back. Exactly. So but the, the problem back is, angle is not diagnostic of the of the correct angle. The back angle is diagnostic of anthropometrics. Yeah. And, you know, it, it just, fuck, okay. That just is like one so of those. So what you're saying is you owe everything i need to send him a check <laughs> i guess i ought to send him a check you're like go fuck it's pay to go fuck yourself yes yes there's one now, fucking dollar leave me alone from now on. but uh, i wonder where that guy is i don't have any idea don't know i, I bet you he's like one of those uh harry krishna's that uh they, they don't clearly they, they remember the people to, used to be at the airports they got rid of all those he people. has to follow somebody so as I got today, I got a funny email. You know, we have uh, training programs, and on the training programs, there's feeds, and people can ask questions and whatnot. And there's two guys on a program that are complete fucking assholes to each other. They're training partners, right? Right, and they talk shit to each other, like, "Hey, this is why I'm dating your wife, and nobody fucking <laughs> likes you." And they talk shit, <laughs> right? And I know their names, yeah. right? Because not only have they been on there for a long time, but they also comment on our YouTube stuff. 
right? right? Under the same deal. And we, we had this guy on George Bryant. Uh, George is like a marketing guru. He was an ex-Marine, um, you know, had some like trauma when he was young and then went in the Marines and dealt with the trauma and we talked about it. And uh, he posts this thing and it's the same handle. Like kids today are fucking emo as fuck. Mm-hmm. Uh, back in my day, we used to just shoulder that shit. People need to man up. Fuck this pussy. Right. right? Leaves a comment. And um, I just assume these guys are just miserable dudes, and I just leave them alone. I get an email today from some guy that's on a program telling me, I'm not going to tell you how to run your business and then spends three breaths telling me how to run my business, but basically quits because he cannot stand that Power Athlete would allow this to go on. And, like, I'm, I've grown up in locker rooms in this and, like, literally goes through this. His name is Mike Gutto. G-U-T-T-R, Mike Gutto, if you're listening, goes through this thing. I, I'm like laughing hysterically. And this guy's like, like, I quit the program. I would never recommend it. How, you know, and like writes me not just one email, but three emails, multiple paragraphs, lambasting me for allowing this to go on. So I go back in. I'm like, Jesus, did these guys like racial slurs? Comments from the haters. Right? Right. And so I go back in and I screen cap all this stuff. And I sent the guy an email. And I'm like, is this what you're upset about? And he's like, yes, those two. And I'm like, you know, those guys are friends and they've been doing this and they do this on our YouTube. How come you haven't banned them? And I'm like, because it's funny. Because it's because these guys like you don't it's like you don't talk shit to each other. Like I, you know, like uh, <laughs> my brothers and I have a universal wave. You know what it is? We yeah. see each other. We flick each other off. Right. If I see my brother from a distance, it's just a slow finger, right? Like uh, that's been our handshake wave for years, right? And well, like just, we, you know. we talk shit to each other. And like the fact that this guy, oh, and then it's of course like you know I'm not one of those. So like, no, no, you are. You're exactly what's wrong in this world. You, I was taught. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. Right. I take nothing on the internet, nothing within the media. Like I take offense to nothing. If you don't like me and you want to attack me, it's fine. You know what I do? I just turn it off. I delete it. Right? But like people have become so emotionally wrapped up in these words and what people say and this and this that just a troll account that these guys talk shit to each other triggered a dude. To literally lambaste me and tell me, like, I'm not going to tell you to run your company and then spend three deals. This is the downside of the Internet. This is know? the downside of the Internet. It's the downside of the Internet. Everybody has a voice. Well, that's And a, not everybody deserves, deserves a, a voice. voice. Not no, everybody deserves no, a seat at the don't. table. No, they don't. And that's a problem. We've given everybody the idea everybody. that everybody should be heard. No, they shouldn't. Right. No. Everybody should be able to say what they want, but not uh, they should all be weighed differently. Yes. Like, if I have uh, questions, like I, I had uh, uh, Chris Duffin, uh, who invented the Transformer bar and the Kabuki stuff, mm-hmm. like great specialty bars. Uh, it, it is added uh, a layer for injured individuals with shoulders that can't get into bar positions. Incredible. Like, so well thought out. So he was there. And, uh, like, he deadlifted 1,000 pounds for a triple, squatted 1,000 pounds for a triple, uh, belt and wraps, no suit, about killed himself when he did it. And, like, he's a strong dude. He's, yeah. you know, like, that's really strong. And I have, like, if I want to add, like, we were talking about this, and he, you know, uh, like, just interesting perspectives on doing this. Like, he's somebody, I, you know, somebody else who, Greg Glassman talking to me about deadlifting. Right. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, talking to me about deadlifting, and I'm like, like, it, like, do you remember the 40-year-old virgin when he's like, yeah, two bags of sand? That was like when Greg was talking about deadlifting. I'm like, oh, my God, you're a virgin. You've never deadlifted. Right. He was talking to me about it. I told Rip the story. And I called her. Rip's like, yeah, he's never deadlifted before. He can't deadlift. He doesn't have a glute muscle. He's got no he leg. Has, he had polio. Yeah. And he doesn't have a lift, I think it is, glute. Yeah. It's gone. He's never deadlifted. He, and, and he was he talking to me about it like two bags of sand. Right. And I was like, whoa. 
you know, and right. uh, like that's, you know, but yet I'll tell you, like uh, probably one of the most amazing, most charismatic speakers I've ever heard present is Greg Glassman. He is a he is a damned efficient presenter. He oh my God. Sure is. I've never. You uh, just have to remember that there are some things that he's going to tell you that have no basis in his experience. Yeah. And that's fine. You know, the guy appreciates the deadlift, having never done the goddamn deadlift. Yeah. And and he should appreciate the deadlift, and he ought to promote it, and it ought to be a staple of the program. There's no doubt about that. The, the problem with CrossFit is is very, very simple. It is not training. It is not five pounds of workout. It is a bunch of random bullshit, and if you revisit an exercise once every six months or six weeks, you, you're not going to be any stronger on it. And as a result, it's process. Adaptation. It's not. It's process versus outcome. Exactly. It's outcome-driven training. Exactly. It's 100%. Is. And that's, that's yeah. Exactly. Every is. day is an outcome that you're chasing for. Perfect. There is no place for process involved. Right. It's just random outcomes and hoping to God that you can accumulate all these random outcomes to have a final outcome right and it's not a process they're no. like but then when you take a look at the individuals that uh train and compete in the crossfit games they all train they are process they driven individuals they, are. they have That's olympic exactly. weightlifting. they run they do this they do all of their right. modalities and they follow it within a system and a process and there's yeah. bumps they make the games they don't they don't stop and they just continue to do it and right. they they compete in different things and they go here and i, I follow a, a a ton of crossfitters because one i, I respect their work ethic and oh, yeah. and their dedication of just utter insanity uh, and their ability to like just burn themselves at the tip. I mean, it's it's great, but like they are process driven. CrossFit as a training, uh, let's say modality, or even just as a fitness deal, right. is outcome driven at right. every point. Right. No, that's absolutely true. Absolutely true. But you know what? They're adults. We live in the land of the free and the home of the brave, or we used to for we the Patriot did. Act. We did. Uh, but, you know, uh, life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, they have the right to go and do what they want to do. Sure. And you know what? I'm more than happy that they're doing it. At least they're up off their asses. Yeah. You know? Opposed from a bunch of people sitting around. they're up off their asses, but let's not pretend that it's strength training. No. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's got to be better than, um, I don't know, fucking jazzercise and hoes. It's hopes. better than functional training. It is better than functional. What is functional training by definition? I, I, I now, never. There's an entirely different show. I, next time we, you I, I hear, talk, I, when I hear the word functional, yeah. I think anything can be functional. Well, yes. What does function mean? The ability to a, perform a, a task. That is a label that is. Let's say that. <laughs> I, think, I think that makes okay, that's a three-hour This is a three-part. Right. Yeah, we got a three-part podcast. Uh, well, John, thank you for coming up today. This is uh, I always have fun talking to you. Thank you, sir. And, and we uh, uh, we need to get together on a regular basis. Well, well, maybe we'll get, do this more often. Well, I will uh, next time. I owe you a drive. Okay. All right. But this time you got to hang around. A little bit. Okay. Last time you uh, you shot down, but then I think y'all had a bunch of stuff going we on. We had shit to do up here, yeah. And uh, but I'll, I'll I'll come down some afternoon and we'll go out and eat dinner or something like that. Sounds great. I look forward to it. Thank you. All right, John. Thank you very much, my Appreciate friend. It. Thank you for being here, and thank you guys for watching us this week on Starting Strength Radio. We'll see you next time.